If you would, open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 will be in verses 16 to 18 this morning. What is the single greatest need of every person in here? It is true. But don't gloss over that too quickly. What is the single greatest need that you and I have? A need that is so great that our eternity is at stake. Eternity where we will spend endless hours, days, weeks, and years either in glory or demise. And there's one thing that determines that destination, my friends, and it is, what is your relation to Jesus Christ? That is always the most ultimate question. And it's the question that is actually answered here. How can we have that relation with Jesus Christ? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 to 18. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever, where, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Father, we believe that whenever, whenever your word is preached, we believe that the very word of God is proclaimed. And because of the magnificence of this truth, would you help us to receive to receive these preached words, not merely as the words of men, but as what they are, the word of God. But only and in as much as it is faithful to your word. And because of that, Lord Jesus, I ask you this morning just one simple request, that you would convert and change us this morning. Just one thing. From the youngest of us to the oldest of us, Lord Jesus, would you in your sovereign grace, would you save us? For that is the most important thing. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Where do all of our problems come from? Supposedly, Albert Einstein once said, you cannot solve a problem with the same mind that created it. If that's true, which I would agree with him, then it shows actually that we are the primary problem because we are seeking to solve all of our problems, but yet none of them are solved. You cannot solve a problem with the same mind that created it. There's some schools of thought today that say that all of our problems are just out there. So as long as we can fix out there, then we're fine. Paul gives a bigger problem. 
that very first word in verse 16, if you'll look at it, that word, but. In other words, verse 16 is responding to what's been said before. And if you see at the very end of verse 15, it says, a veil lies over their hearts. The biggest problem for you and me is that there is a veil over our hearts and it has to be removed. That veil over our hearts is what blinds us spiritually. It hardens our hearts. It condemns us. And we saw a couple weeks ago, it even kills us. In other words, this problem is so bad that heaven and hell are at stake. By the way, I think it's so fascinating that in today's times, whenever anyone even says the word hell, they're labeled as a fire and brimstone preacher. I wonder what we would say about Jesus, who, by the way, talked about hell more than anyone in the Bible. The question is, how can this problem be removed? How can this veil be removed? How can we see things rightly? Here's how it doesn't happen. It's not going to happen by a new theory. It's not going to happen once we just really know our past or once we really get in tune with our true personality. It's not because we go on a long enough streak without sinning or that we go on a long enough streak with attending church. It's not because we get the right education and it's not even because we learn to see current societal problems in a new way or even past societal problems in a new way. None of that removes the veil. So what does? Paul says it's simply this, turning to the Lord. That the the answer to our biggest problem is that we must be converted. We must be born again. I love, there was a story Sinclair Ferguson tells about George Whitfield. A lady once asked Whitfield why he was so insistent on preaching these words, you must be born again. Why did he say that so often? His simple reply was this, because, madam, you must be born again. There just simply is no other answer to our biggest problem. We must be born again. But how does that happen? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 16. How does someone become a Christian? But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. What what does it mean to turn? Well, it simply means this. Imagine when you're walking maybe on campus or driving your car. If you're going to turn a different direction, it means to stop going the way you were going to go elsewhere. But the way in which this word is used is that Paul is talking about a spiritual turning. It's actually the word that is used for conversion. It means that there is a change in our spiritual status. That's how the veil is removed. That's how our biggest problem is solved. And when it says that we're to turn to the Lord, it implies that before we turn, that there's hiding. There's shame. There's running away. You remember Jonah Jonah had to be turned around because he was running away. 
So what, when, whenever we turn around, whenever we turn to the Lord, what are we turning from? What's actually interesting, when we remember what the illustration Paul is using about Moses and the Israelites in Exodus 34, whenever Moses would speak to the Israelites, they had to turn away from the golden calf to look at Moses. That's exactly what happens in conversion. That to be converted, to become a Christian, to be born again, those are all synonymous. To become a Christian means you turn away from your idols and you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul says here that by saying when one turns to the Lord... What he's not saying is that we have the ability in ourselves to do it. I'll explain that in just a second. Rather, what he's doing, he's just simply stating, here's what happens in your conversion. Whenever you're converted, the veil is removed, and your relationship with Jesus changes. But then we need to kind of sort out some stuff first if we're going to understand who's doing what. What's interesting here is that you see this. Look at verse 16. It says, but when one turns to the Lord, the question is, who is the Lord? Well, it says later in verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit. But then you run across this. Then it says, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Let me, long story short of a lot of studying. You have here two lords. You have here, the, the first Lord is talking about whenever you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. But then you also see, as it were, another Lord, the Holy Spirit, who is also called the Spirit of Christ. What Paul is doing here so beautifully is that he's not saying that there's one God and he just wears different masks whenever he's kind of in a different mood. If he wants to do one work, he puts this mask on. Then when he wants to do another work, he takes that one off and he puts this other mask on. That's that's not what it is. Some of you will know the video about, uh, oh, Patrick. That's modalism, Patrick. If you haven't seen that YouTube video, it's hilarious. Um, And if you haven't, you're probably looking at me saying, what in the world is happening? No, what Paul is saying is not that there's one God wearing different masks. He's also not saying this. He's not saying that there's two different gods. See, what we believe in Christianity is that there is one God who exists in his triune nature in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is a distinction in the persons, but they are not divided in order to be different gods. There's only one God. Here's why this makes it so fascinating. It's because in order for you and me to become a Christian, it takes the triune God to do that work. What Paul is saying here is that Me turning to Jesus, me being converted to Christianity is not just my own mental assent. The Spirit of Christ, God Himself, must turn me. That's what it's saying. What we need to remember is that whenever it calls the Spirit Lord, it means He's a person, not an it. 
He's not a thing. It's a he person. He's God. Why does that matter? Because anything that is an it or a thing, we can manipulate. We try to control. But what, what Paul is saying, why he labels the Holy Spirit as Lord, is to remind us that the Holy Spirit being God himself, he cannot be manipulated. He cannot be controlled. It also means this. He does not need our permission. That makes us uncomfortable. The Holy Spirit does not answer to us. Rather, we answer to him. Maybe you've studied a little bit of this. The questions about what about Reformed theology or Calvinism. Those are buzzwords that maybe make some people cringe or some people say, yes. The only thing that matters is if it's according to Scripture. And here's what Paul is saying right here, and it's translated greatly in the English, and it is true to the Greek text. What Paul is saying is that how does someone become a Christian? It is not because of what I do. The context makes this very clear that for me to turn to Jesus Christ, it comes only from the Holy Spirit. When it says in verse 17, when it says, now the Lord is the Spirit, that word now, it literally means but or and. I know this might sound a little bit like like a lecture, but I'm going to show you how this all ties together. In other words, when verse 17 begins with the word now, it's connecting verse 16 and 17 together. Here's what it's saying. That in order for verse 16 to happen, verse 17 is the answer key. You see that? So, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The question is, how is the veil removed? Now the Lord is the Spirit. And wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom of what? Freedom from the veil. You guys see what's happening here, right? Paul is describing that true gospel ministry is all of grace. It's not a little bit of God and a little bit of us. It's all of his grace. It's saying, Paul is saying this, God's saying this in his word, <clears throat> that, that all ability... When, when everything about our salvation is taking, taken into consideration, all of it comes from the Holy Spirit alone and not from us. In other words, the Holy Spirit does not need our permission or our cooperation in order for us to become a believer. You see, <laughs> if he were waiting for us to give him permission or for us to cooperate with him, it's implying that somehow in and of ourselves we would want God, but that runs totally against the rest of Scripture. It says very clear in Ephesians 2, 1, that we were dead in our sins. It says in Romans 3, 
We did not want God. We were not good. We were not righteous. So if the Holy Spirit is waiting to cooperate with us, there would be no cooperation. The problem is not just that we're unable to say yes to God. We're also unwilling. The question is, who's going to change that? <clears throat> what, what Paul is saying here is that the Holy Spirit alone must be the one who transforms our hearts. He must give us the very faith we use to believe. We, we, we don't have an autonomous will. What does that mean? An autonomous will means that no one can tell me what to do. I am a radically free agent and no one is my sovereign. That actually makes no sense because either God is God or he's not. Either God is the sovereign or he's not at all. You might say, well, God offers me a choice, but it's up to me to, to decide. I hope not. Because I would never decide. You might say, well, God chose me because he knew I would say yes. No, he did not. Because even if he supposedly looked through the tunnel of time to see who would say yes to him, as he looked through the tunnel of time, all he would see is a wicked people who wanted nothing to do with him. Rather, what Paul is saying here is that salvation is totally sovereign on God's part. Amen? It is all the Holy Spirit. It is all of his work to take us who never would have wanted God. That's the miracle of salvation. How do you become a Christian? Just simply by his grace. Amen? <clears throat> Forgive me, I'm coming over a cold. It's not because Tulane lost yesterday, although that was heartbreaking. We did have amazing jerseys, though. But listen to what Romans 9:16 says, talking about our salvation. So then it depends not on human will. Or our exertion, meaning our effort. So if it does not depend on that, what does it depend on? But on God who has mercy. John 1.13 says this, that we were born, talking about being born again, not of blood, talking about there's just certain ethnic people who God favors them, no, we're born again, not of blood, nor of the will of our own flesh, or of the will of man. So how are we born again? Of God. It's just simply by his grace. If we contribute anything to salvation, then all of a sudden it is no longer grace, it is payment. It would mean that God owes me. And my friends, God is never going to owe us. It means when Paul's saying here that 
the Lord is the Spirit. He's the one who removes the veil. He's saying that it's not merely a gentle persuasion. He's, he's saying that we cannot resist God. He's not saying that the free choice of salvation is left up to us. He's not saying that God knew we would choose Him. Rather, what Paul is saying very definitively here, that everything about our salvation comes from Jesus Christ and Him alone. Amen? Him alone. The only reason, what Paul is saying, the only reason why we turn to the Lord, why we are converted, is because of the Holy Spirit and purely His grace. And my friends, that's very, very, very good news because it means that if none of your works, if none of your efforts contribute to salvation, then none of your works and none of your efforts can lose the salvation. Amen? But the moment you bring works in, the moment you, you, you put the foundation upon your effort, then of course you could think, I might lose my salvation. What's Paul saying here? <clears throat> How does someone become a Christian? It is only because of the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. And we are just the benefactors. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing that God would dare to choose us? Isn't it amazing that God would dare to bring the gospel all the way to Stillwater, Oklahoma, 2,000 years after Christ rose from the dead? Isn't it amazing that we would even have a copy of God's word? Isn't it amazing that he would give us even a, a building and finances to do ministry? Isn't it amazing that he would give you the desire to want to come here? Isn't it amazing that he would give us the desire to pray or to reach out to other people or to bring our sins to him who will judge us and say, Lord Jesus, take care of this. Where did you get any of this, my friends? It's just purely by his grace. My friends, no one is more loving than Jesus Christ. Amen? No one is. What's so amazing about this is that when we understand what the Bible is saying about how someone becomes a Christian and how someone stays a Christian, when we realize that it is all by His grace, it means that God saves us despite ourselves. It means that God's still going to work in my life regardless of my sin. It means that I can't mess up his plan. It means this. It means that my children cannot mess up his plan if it is his sovereign grace, if it is his will to save them. You know what that means? You can never run too far. You can never sin too heinously. You can never have too bad or too scarred of a past. My friends, if you can do nothing to earn it, then you can do nothing to forfeit it. And if we're honest in here, we know that the reality of our hearts is that we really are a bunch of sinners. 
By the way, we don't even understand the tip of the tip of the iceberg of our sin. We do not come in here pounding our chest saying, look at me. As long as everyone else would just get on their spiritual level like me. My friends, you, you and I have absolutely nothing were it not for the grace of God. I grew up in the PCA church. Children, I want you to hear this. I grew up in the PCA church, a PCA church of 1,500 members, a flagship church in the PCA. Phenomenal preaching. Elders who loved me. Women who catechized me. Parents who raised me up and taught me the faith. Everything on the outside seemed like it was good. But you know, the reality of my heart for 20 years was that I was dead. <clears throat> the reality of my heart was that I was not a believer. And you want to know what happened? It was just another Sunday under the same preacher in the same sanctuary. The only difference was that I wasn't sitting up in the balcony. I was sitting a little bit closer, so maybe I was more holy. I don't know. It wasn't like the lights were like, or this massive booming voice. It just was a very simple, I believe that. But who gave me the faith to believe that? The Holy Spirit. My friends, all of us stand here by grace. And that means this. That if anyone in Stillwater, if anyone in our families, if anyone here is going to believe, it's purely by his grace. And here's the good news. He's going to get them. Because he's undefeated. He is the best fisherman. Which is why we're anything. We are nothing, but we have the most confidence in the world that even with a hoarse voice, there can be a divine voice in the heart. That even if I know hardly anything about apologetics, although we, we love apologetics and we're teaching it in Sunday school, so please come to Sunday school. But even if you don't know all the arguments, but if you have the word of God and wherever his spirit goes, if he wants them to be born again, they will be born again. It's amazing. And what Paul is saying is this. This does not happen in any other way except when the gospel of grace is preached. Amen? In no other way. He says in verse 17 that whenever we receive the Spirit, there's freedom. Doesn't, can I just get you to imagine something? <clears throat> I want you to imagine that feeling when you finally get into heaven and when you realize finally no more not on my conscience not from the evil one not from anyone in the world there I will be totally utterly beyond any condemnation isn't that an amazing thought When we become converted, God is guaranteeing that to happen. 
He's saying that wherever the Holy Spirit is, there is freedom, my friends. Especially from the sins that haunt you most. There is freedom from blindness. Freedom from the hardened heart. Freedom from the law's penalty and power. Freedom from death. My friends, freedom from condemnation and shame. Isn't that good news? But God doesn't just give us freedom from things. He also gives us freedom for things. Now with gospel grace, he gives us freedom to see. Freedom for godliness. Freedom for gospel obedience. Freedom for spiritual living, for loving the Lord Jesus Christ. My friends... If you become a Christian, it means that you are free to finally be who you were meant to be. And by the way, that is being less like your sinful self and more like Jesus Christ. The best me that I can be is actually when I repent of being so obsessed with me and I look at Jesus Christ. And that's what he frees me for. So what is Paul saying? What's the summary here? The summary is this. The summary is that you become a Christian when the Holy Spirit gives you new life by turning you to Jesus and removing the veil from your heart. Amen? That's how our biggest problem is solved. Let me ask you a question. What would you do if you packed up everything that belonged to you to go to a foreign land to bring the gospel of grace to a group of people who've never heard it? Some of you might do that. I hope, I hope the Lord calls you to do that. But what if during that time, when you were there, your daughter who was only 10 months old was with you? But one day, you received the tragic news that while you've packed up everything and left everything to be in this foreign land with only a very small group of people that you know, and your 10-month-old daughter and you receive the news that your husband's dead, that he was killed by the very people you're trying to reach. That, that'd be the time to want to give up, right? That'd be the time to say, this, this group of people, the problem's too big. But that's not what Elizabeth Elliot thought. Instead of retreating, what Elizabeth Elliot did is that she returned to the very people who killed her husband. It's interesting that the time you would think you would really want to cancel people would be that moment, but she didn't. She returned to the very people who killed her husband, and instead of condemning them, she proclaimed the gospel of grace. And do you want to know what happened? Transformation. Listen listen to her words at the very end of the book that she wrote about her husband. November 1958. Nearly three years have passed since that Sunday afternoon talking about when Jim was killed. Jim and three other men, or two other men, I can't remember, I'm sorry. Listen to this. Today, I, Elizabeth, I sit in a tiny leaf-thatched hut on the Tawani River 
not many miles southwest of Palm Beach, which is where her husband Jim was killed. Listen to this. In another leaf house, just about 10 feet away, sit two of the seven men who killed my husband. Jaquita, one of the men, he has just helped Valerie, their daughter. Think about leaving your daughter in another hut with a man who killed your husband. Valerie's now three and a half years old, and Jaquita just helped Valerie roast a plantain. Two of Jaquita's sons have now gone to the forest, shouldering their skillfully made blowguns in search of meat to feed the other 15 to 20 Aka Indians who are in this clearing. She says this, How did this come to be? Only the God who made iron swim. The God who caused the sun to stand still. The God in whose hand is the breath of every living thing. Only this God. And this God is our God forever and ever. And only he could have done it. Amen? Here is my question for us this morning. Why do we think that these stories are only trapped in the past, but we need to seek change in a different way? There is only one message that will change people's hearts. There is only one message that will change your heart. And it is the message that Jesus Christ, God himself, that he took on flesh. And out of phenomenal, infinite love for us, he was born of a virgin. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was chased out of his home to even go to Egypt, and God brought him out of Egypt. And for almost 30 years, he lived a, a, just a very normal life, but in perfect righteousness. That every affection of his heart, every thought in his mind, every word that he spoke, every action was all perfect. And the whole time he was doing that to give us a righteousness that we don't have. And even though he was the perfect one, the one who we all should have been, he actually goes to the cross to step in our place. And while he's on the cross, as we rejected him, God pours down his wrath upon him, the wrath that we should have taken. And at the end of taking that wrath, right before he gives up his breath, he says, to telestai, meaning it is finished. That Jesus Christ, the God of all glory, who is also a true human. He stepped in your place. He stepped in my place. And he absorbed the wrath of God so that none of it might be poured on me. And he really died. And for three days he was in that grave, my friends. But then he rose from the grave, didn't he? Come on now, didn't he? He is risen. 
And it is the ultimate reality of all things. He's not only resurrected from the dead, he ascended into heaven where he reigns right now at the right hand of God. And do you know what he's doing for you and me? In our worst moments, he is interceding, saying, Father, forgive them, for my atonement for them is enough. And you know what's going to happen? He's going to come back. He will come back. Whether in our lifetime or after we're gone, he will come back. And everyone will answer to him. But everyone who answers to him and whoever is justified, whoever receives the free pardon, whoever receives his righteousness, no one will ever stand there saying, God gave me what I deserve. My friends, don't you ever tell God, give me what I deserve. You ask him, would you give me what Christ deserves? Because if you are a believer, you are in union with Jesus Christ, which means this. Whatever is Jesus's is yours. And whatever was yours is Jesus's. You realize what this means, sinner. (laughs) Oh, you sinners, me too. You realize that now in Jesus, my sin does not belong to me because it was transferred to him on the cross. Who in the world am I to look at my sin and continue to beat myself up saying, Lord, once I beat myself up enough, then I could come to you. Who in the world do we think we are? The Lord Jesus Christ says, you come to me now because I've taken care of it. You come to me now because there is no other way for you to be cleansed but through me. You come to me now because I was beaten up for you. And you know what enables that to happen? The grace of the Holy Spirit. My friends, how can you become a Christian Simply by the grace of God. And there is no greater thing that can happen in your life than you to respond now to Jesus Christ. That you cry out to the Holy Spirit saying, cause me to be born again. Grant me the faith to believe what you are saying in your word. Help me to behold the glory of Jesus Christ and all that is in Him. Help me to forsake my old ways. And that determines your eternity. Do you know what's amazing? You know, after you die or when Jesus comes back, we'll be back in Stillwater. We might also go elsewhere, but we'll be back here. And we'll see each other and know each other in such glory as you've never seen and will finally be in paradise with the Lord Jesus Christ amen don't you want this and don't you want other people to want this there's nothing like the gospel grace believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved let's pray
Father, I pray that you would still be the God who is the one who often speaks in the still, small voice. (laughs) Um, Thank you that you are the God who never changes. Thank you that you are the God whose message never changes. Thank you that you are the God who has come after us all because of grace. Father, I'm, I'm praying for those who are not believers that they would believe now. But also for those who are believers that they would rest assured that you who began a good work in their own heart, you will bring it to completion despite our own sinfulness. Lord Jesus, all in all, may you be glorified. May we respond in singing to you. We ask all this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.